Thank you for choosing the podcast of East Haven Baptist Church in Brookhaven, Mississippi. For more information on the ministries of East Haven and to access videos and sermon notes from our services, visit www.easthaven.net. Sometimes it's, it's really easy for us to, to lose perspective, uh, lose perspective about certain things. And the problem with losing your perspective about a certain thing is usually if you lose your perspective about one thing, you begin to lose your perspective about other things that are connected to that thing or that idea. So sometimes we, we may lose our perspective. Sometimes we may forget our place so far as who God is and who we are, who we are according to God's word. And that's a very dangerous thing to do if we forget our place. We may neglect growth in our lives. God may be, uh, I know, well, we know that God wants to mature us, but God may be growing us in a certain way and we may neglect that. We may step back away from that growth and, and believe that we have already arrived or we may ignore truth altogether. God may be very clear in his word, and God is clear in his word about truth and the nature of truth, and his word is absolute truth. You don't, you, you don't get to make your own truth. God's word is truth. You may have an opinion. You may have a preference. It's not the same thing as truth, because God's word is not only true, but it is truth. It is unchanging. It is firm. It is, it is absolute but whenever we get to a place that we lose that perspective or, or we may forget our place where we are in relation to God, who we are in relation to God, or we neglect our growth or we ignore truth, we find that we need to reclaim those things. We need to go back and reclaim the, the truth. We need to reclaim the right perspective, reclaim our right identity so far as who we are in Christ or who we are without Christ and who God is in the midst of that. And God's word is the tool that we use to reclaim those things. We don't do it on our own. I'm just going to try harder. I'm going to figure it out myself. I'm going to, I think I'm wise enough, smart enough, skilled enough. I think I can. No, we must go back to God's word and allow God's word to redirect us so that we are equipped to know what is the right perspective. We are equipped to know what is my identity in Christ and who is God and who I am without God, but also for us to understand what is truth. And so this morning, we're starting a new series called Reclaim. And over the next few weeks, I want us to just walk through certain things that we need to reclaim, not only as a church, not only as individuals, but also as, as a people, big C church in our world today. And the first one I want us to look at this morning is what we've been singing about all through uh, the, the, the praise time that we've just had. And it's the idea of reclaiming the awe of a holy God. Because if you start talking to people nowadays and, and also in some churches, you start talking about the holiness of God. And people don't like to talk about it. You talk about that God is a holy God. And people recoil from that idea. And can I just tell you, that is normal. Sinful human 
flesh. Sinful humanity recoils at the idea of a holy God. So that is a normal, and not only normal, an expected response. We'll see why in a few moments. But first of all, if we're going to talk about God being holy, we need to define what do we mean by holy. Now, sometimes we say God is holy. What does that mean? And sometimes people say, well, it means he's good and he's all good. Well, yes, but the Bible already says God is good. And some say, well, it means that God is perfect. He's perfect in all of his ways. And and, well, and that's true too. But the idea of holiness is a very broad umbrella and all these other things fall under that. God is holy in the sense of he is separate. He is separate from everyone else. He is separate from everyone else because he is perfectly good, because he is completely righteous, because he is all-knowing, because he rules over all things in his sovereignty. God is holy. And so we have to understand that it means that God is set apart. That's the idea of holiness, to be set apart. And so God is set apart. He is different from everything else. He is different from everyone else because God is holy. And so I would like for us this morning to go to Isaiah chapter 6. And I want us to look at this idea of God being holy. How do we reclaim this correct awe, that that awestruck wonder that we sang about? How do we reclaim a godly fear, the right kind of fear of God, because he is a holy God? We're going to pick up in Isaiah chapter 6, verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the the seraphim. Each had six wings, with two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. Let's pray. Lord God, we come before you. We pray this morning you would bless the reading of your word, the hearing of your word. Father, you would challenge us by your word, that you would reveal yourself to us in a way where we recognize your holiness. We are reminded of your holiness, or perhaps we encounter your holiness for the first time, and that we would respond rightly to your truth, which is absolute truth for all eternity. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Isaiah writes, and he has a vision. And as this vision starts out in Isaiah chapter 6, Isaiah says it was the year that King Uzziah died. Now, if you don't know who King Uzziah is, let me fill you in on King Uzziah. King Uzziah was one of the only good kings that we find throughout the history that we find in the Bible. There were a few. There were a few here and there. Some, some scholars have said that if you look at all the accomplishments and you, you look at the devotion, King Uzziah would be probably counted in the top five of that list of good kings. He was a good king. He came to the throne when he was 16 years old. 
Now, those of us who are adults or are adults, think back to when you were 16. Think of the job you had when you were 16. Think about now being a king over a country or a queen over a country when you were 16. Can you imagine how that might have gone? Now, I know if you're around 16 right now, you probably go, I could do that. (laughs) That's what we would have said when we were 16. But now looking back on it, we realize probably not. But But Uzziah, King Uzziah became king when he was 16 years old. And he had a mentor who came alongside him a mentor by the name of Zechariah. Now, this is not the Zechariah that wrote the book of Zechariah in the Bible. Uh, This was a a common name. And so there was a man named Zechariah that came along and mentored him. But we find in 2 Chronicles chapter 26, this is what the Bible records about King Uzziah. He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, according to all that his father Amaziah had done. Now, that's a good start. He set himself to seek God in the days of Zechariah, who instructed him in the fear of God. And as long as he sought the Lord, God made him prosper. So Zechariah was his mentor. Zechariah was there with him. Zechariah was teaching and instructing him. But it says, he set himself to seek God in the days of Zechariah. Which means in the lifetime of Zechariah. Which means after Zechariah died, then maybe some other influences came in. Look at what happens in 2 Chronicles chapter 26, verse 15. In Jerusalem, he made machines invented by skillful men to be on the towers and the corners to shoot arrows and great stones. So he creates siege engines and, and, and defensive mechanisms, catapults and, and war machinery that would fire arrows so he could defend the city. So he's smart, he's strategic, he's good. And he's smart. These are, these are great things to have in a king. And his fame spread far, for he was marvelously helped till he was strong. Look at verse 16. But when he was strong, he grew proud to his destruction. For he was unfaithful to the Lord his God and entered the temple of the Lord to burn incense on the altar of incense. Around the time that this has happened, Isaiah became king around the or at 16 around the time this happened when you look at the math it's around 40 something years he has been serving as king when he makes this error so he's not only a good king he's not only a smart king when it comes to strategy he's also a seasoned king he's an experienced king yet he falls into this trap he becomes proud and he decides He's going to enter into the temple, and he's going to burn incense, and he's going to do that in the place of the priests, who were the only ones that had the divine sanction from God to enter into that place to offer that kind of sacrifice. And Uzziah thought, I could do that. I've done all this other stuff. I could do that. Mind you, he's one of the good kings, which leads us to the first point we want to make. The first point we make is this. God is set apart from all creation. That's why we call him holy. We must respond to him differently than to anyone else. We must respond to God differently than we respond to anyone or anything else because God is set apart from creation. He is 
holy. Look at what happens. Verse 17 of 2 Chronicles 26. Azariah the priest went in after him with 80 priests of the Lord who were men of valor. And they withstood King Uzziah and said to him, It is not for you, Uzziah, to burn incense to the Lord, but for the priests, the sons of Aaron, who were consecrated to burn incense. Go out of the sanctuary, for you have done wrong, and it will bring you no honor from the Lord God. So they're standing there and they're saying, whoa, 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 you don't want to go any further. You don't want to disrupt this divine order. You don't want to upset this hierarchy that God has set. And it says in verse 19, then Uzziah was angry. Now he has a censer in his hand to burn incense. And when he became angry with the priests, leprosy broke out, broke out on his forehead in the presence of the priest in the house of the Lord by the altar of incense. He hasn't even started burning the incense. And God strikes him with leprosy. Now, biblical leprosy is a little different than the leprosy we have today. Biblical leprosy could be any sort of skin disease. And it was a sign of being unclean. And whenever you had leprosy in biblical times, you were separated from everybody because you were ritualistically impure and you could not even go into the temple anymore to worship. You had to be separated from everybody. We find it says... Verse 20, Azariah, the chief priest, and all the priests looked at him, and behold, he was leprous in his forehead. And they rushed him out quickly, and he himself hurried to go out, because the Lord had struck him. And King Uzziah was a leper to the day of his death, and being a leper, lived in a separate house, for he was excluded from the house of the Lord. And Jotham, his son, was over the king's household, governing the people of the land. He was a leper for another decade or so of his life, and then he died. The word Zechariah, the name Zechariah means the Lord remembers. The Lord remembers. Here's Zechariah mentoring King Uzziah, and the king is remembering the Lord. And then after the days of Zechariah, and after the days those pass by, and King Uzziah becomes proud, he forgets. Zechariah was there to remind him to remember the Lord. And when Zechariah is gone, then the king, King Uzziah, whose very name means the Lord is strong. That's what Uzziah means. Uzziah finds this out in a very dramatic way. He presumes to take it upon himself to do what only the priests were called to do. And God strikes him with leprosy. And now this set apart God, this holy God now sets Uzziah apart, but not in holiness in ritualistic impurity. And he lives as a leper the rest of his days. So this is the king when he dies. That Isaiah has this vision in the temple. King Uzziah reigned for over 50 years. It was 40 years or so in whenever he has this incident and makes this grievous error. And then he served for another decade or so, sort of as Jotham as his go-between, his son. So for 50-something years, Uzziah is king. And for those last decade, plus a few years maybe, Uzziah is separated from the people. And he's separated from worship in the temple. Uzziah forgot that God is set apart from all creation. So we respond to him differently than we do to anyone else. Go back to Isaiah chapter 6. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne. This guy has been, he's been king for years and years and years. For some people, it's the only king they knew. 
And now it seems, what's going to happen in our nation? What's going to happen to the people? What's going to happen to the throne? What's going to happen? And Isaiah gets a glimpse. Oh, but wait. Oh, but wait. King Uzziah may be off the throne. King Uzziah may be dead and buried. But there is one who is on the throne who has never vacated the throne. Who is set apart from all creation. Who rules over all things. We must reclaim that awe of that holy God. See, we make a mistake when we start trying to lessen who God is. We try to reduce him to a God who is a little more manageable. We try to take God and try to cram him into a box so that we feel better about ourselves. Let me read you something that was written uh, about that kind of God and how we sometimes regard God in the wrong way when we lose a view of the holiness of God. Uh, this is an excerpt from a small or short work called The Mush God. Uh, a God that we, if we look at God and we forget that he's a holy God and we look at him sort of as a, a mush God, a God with no backbone, a God with no substance, just like a bowl of oatmeal or something, just a, a mush God. Listen to what this writer writes. The mush God has been known to appear all over the world on Sunday mornings to, be, to a great many people wanting to relax and read the Sunday paper and have a nice hot cup of coffee. He's always there to soothe you, put your mind at rest, always ready to tell you deserve the rest today because you've worked so hard during the week. He's also eager to tell you about that really important game on TV or to remind you about all the things you need to do around the house this Sunday. During the week, the mush God appears all over the place. He appears with politicians at ribbon-cutting ceremonies and a clergyman speaking the invocation on national TV at either Democratic or Republican conventions. In fact, the mush god is the god that politicians always seem to turn to. The mush god just adores politicians. The mush god is also the father of the innocuous and harmless prayer. The mush god is very proud that his beliefs and doctrines are completely non-irritating and non-offensive. The mush god loves to show up whenever spiritual questions are being debated he loves to talk about his views on tolerance. His laws seem to be made out of rubber because they bend so much. You can take any of his laws and mold them into a much more useful manner. He is so very easy to get along with. What a convenient God. Oh, thank heavens for the mush God. The mush God is a serviceable God who will fit in anywhere. His laws are chiseled not on tables of stone, but they are written on sand, which allows his laws to be open to amendment, qualification, change, and erasure. Here is a God that will compromise with you. He will gladly relax the rules. He will declare all wars holy and all peace hallowed. Here is a God that is all too happy to look the other way. Here is a God who is a good friend to everyone. In fact, the mush God tells all his friends that they can do no wrong, that all activities are fine with him. And most people just love him for that and are all too happy to follow him wherever he might lead them. That's the idea that some people have about God. That's the idea a lot of people within Christianity have about God. By the way, this was written not by a Christian, not by a pastor, not by, by some theologian. It was written by a very deeply liberal-minded, left, kind of entrenched journalist who worked for the Washington Post, Nicholas von Hoffman, in 1978. And it is just as relevant today because that is how so many people regard God. Just as Nicholas von Hoffman 
depicted how many people view God. Even this guy who, who stood against all manner of things that the Christian church stood for, they couldn't stand Billy Graham. Even this guy recognized the God that sometimes is talked about is not the kind of God that is worthy to be followed. Now, you get a mush God on one side, and you have the holy God, the Lord God, who sits on his throne, whose train, the train of his robe, the edge of his robe, fills the temple. And to whom the seraphim, the burning ones, these, these angelic beings crying out, holy, holy, holy. Notice what it says. They called to one another and said, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. That's emphasis. Not just holy is the God. Holy is the Lord. Holy is the one who sits on the throne. No, holy, holy, no. Holy, holy, holy. It's an emphasis. This is why we find in Psalm chapter 50 or Psalm 50 verse 21, the words of the Lord, these things you have done and I have been silent. You thought I was one like yourself. God says you make a mistake if you think I'm just like you. You make a mistake when you think that you can take me and put me in a box and reduce me down to something that is more manageable. You make a mistake when you think I'm going to call on you, God, and I'm going to bring you in to defend my opinion. I think or I def- bring God in to defend my preferences or bring, my, bring God in to defend all of these other things that I want to cling to that aren't of God. We must respond to him differently than we respond to anyone else because God's holy. He is a holy God. And when you enter into the presence of a holy God, there is that reverential awe that takes place. Now, I know sometimes we say, yeah, and that's what, that's what should happen on Sunday morning when people come into the sanctuary. Let's time out. If you are a follower of Christ, you are in the presence of a holy God day and night. Everything that you do is an act of worship to a holy God, or it is an act that is in rebellion to a holy God. Everything. Let me tell you, you get in the Walmart checkout line and you're claiming the name of Christ. I don't mean you're going around saying, hey, everybody, I'm a Christian. But if you claim the name of Christ, you're in the Walmart checkout line and you act like someone who does not know Jesus and you act rude and snippy and angry and backbiting and everything. Can I just tell you, that's an act of worship, but it's not worshiping the holy God. The way you treat your family, the way you treat your coworkers, the way your, your attitude when you come into worship. I've talked to people before, you know, who, who've come into worship with this attitude of, well, here I am. Let's get it over with. Come on now. Come on. I got things to do. Can I just tell you, that's not the attitude of one coming into the presence of a holy God. When we go before God, we have to reclaim this awe of the holiness of God and understand that we respond to him in a different way. We respond to him in worship. This is why we find in Revelation chapter 4, verse 8, sort of a callback to this moment in Isaiah chapter 6. Revelation 4, 8, and the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within. And day and night, they never cease to say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Notice they say that day and night, they never cease. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Now, I like praise songs and I like hymns. 
Well, for those of you that are like, I don't like praise songs, you better get used to it because this is what you're going to be hearing for all eternity. And this is what you're going to be saying for all eternity. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. What more can you say when you're in the presence of a holy God? He's set apart from all creation. We have to respond to him completely and totally differently. Look at how Isaiah responds. Look down at verse 5. And I said, woe is me, for I am lost. Some translations, I am ruined. I think the King James says, for I am undone. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atone for not only is god set apart from all creation so we respond to him differently than anyone else god's holiness makes our sinful condition clear and so we must receive his merciful cleansing when you go into the presence of a holy god your sin gets highlighted because you realize oh oh wait god is a holy god and whenever your sin is highlighted you have a recognition of who you are in the presence of a holy God, and we have a response like Isaiah, woe is me, for I am, for I am lost, I am ruined, I am undone. Notice the reason he says that. For I am a man of unclean lips, I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Now sometimes people say, he says he's a man of unclean lips. Does that mean that Isaiah, he says the wrong thing? Oh, that must be his sin. Isaiah has a mouth problem. No, Isaiah is saying that I have a mouth problem and the people that I'm with have a mouth problem. And the reason there's a mouth problem is because of something going on in the heart. Isaiah is saying it's a heart issue. That's exactly what Jesus says. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So what's coming out is a reflection of what is going on inside. And Isaiah says, this is just evidence that I got a heart problem. And I'm in the presence of God. I'm looking at God. Listen in Exodus chapter 33, what God says to Moses when Moses says, when God says, what would you like, Moses? Moses says, I want to look at you. And God's like, yeah, you don't want to do that. It's a bad idea for you, Moses. Exodus chapter 30, verse 20. But he said, you cannot see my face for man shall not see me and live. Moses, you can't look on the fullness of my glory. That would be really bad for you. That would be a terrible, terrible thing for you. You would, you would have one moment of experiencing my glory, and then you would be consumed. You would die. So if that's the case, why do we find this blessing in the Bible that we see so often and we hear so often? Numbers chapter 6, verse 24, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you that the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Yeah, that's the prayer. It's been said, and I was reminded again this week of this old idea, that Adam and Eve in the garden, they, were, they, they could interact with God. And we find the prophets go before God. But we find that we have gone from a place of seeing God because of sin, now it's a place of hearing God. We hear from God, but we can't look upon him. One day we will, if we are followers of Christ, 
But we've gone from seeing God to know him to now hearing him to know him. And Isaiah says, I've looked at God. I'm going to die. Woe to me. I'm undone. Do you realize that's necessary? That is so necessary. It's necessary for us to recognize our sinful condition so that we can recognize we need cleansing from God. Because if we don't recognize our sinful condition, we don't recognize the need for cleansing. We don't recognize the need for repentance. We don't recognize the need for confession. We don't recognize the need for God to come in and save us unless we realize our sinful condition. It was Spurgeon who said this, God will never do anything with us till he has first all undone us. God has to first all undo us so that we can recognize who we are without him so we can recognize that we need him. This is why the writer of Hebrews pins these words. It is a fearful thing to fall in the hands of a living God. It's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. And fearful there, it's a terrifying thing. It's an awful thing to fall into the hands of a living God as sinful humans. So what's the recourse? Well, just what we talked about. We must, respond, uh, we must receive his merciful cleansing. Listen to Hebrews 10 verse 22. Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith with our, body, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. We need a spiritual cleansing. We find in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 16, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. How can we boldly go before the throne of God? Only by the blood of Christ. That's the only way we can do that. And then we go from that hearing of God to eventually when all is made right, we will see God. We will be in his presence and we will see him. It started out that Adam and Eve could see God and interact with God. And now it's hearing. And the day's going to come that we will see him again. 1 John chapter 3, verse 2. Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. As one of my friends likes to say, God is going to put enough of himself in you so that you will be able to stand him. Isn't that good? Because the only one who can bear to be in the presence of God is one who bears the righteousness of Christ. That's the only way. The only way you can bear to be in the presence of a holy God is to bear the righteousness of Christ. And when we go before God and we respond to him in confession and in repentance, he gives us that righteousness from Christ the righteousness of Christ, and we are cleansed so that we can enter into his presence. But God's holiness makes our sinful condition clear. Has God made that clear in your life? Has God made the sinful condition without him clear? Has God made that abundantly clear in light of his holiness and who he is? Then finally, look at Isaiah's response to God. After he is cleansed, that seraphim comes or the seraph comes and takes that burning coal and puts it to his lips showing that spiritual cleansing that takes place then we find this god directs his purposes as he sees fit we must surrender our yes before the specifics are shown look at verse 8 and i heard the voice of the lord saying 
whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, here I am, send me. Now let's time out for a second. Isaiah has just recognized the holiness of God. And God has mercifully provided spiritual cleansing to Isaiah so Isaiah could be suited and equipped and fit for the mission. And when God asked the question that we find here in verse 8, whom shall I send and who will go for us? Notice what Isaiah does not say. He does not say, well, I might go, that, but that depends what you need. Isaiah doesn't say, well, uh, I got to look at my schedule, God, but perhaps I'm available on Thursdays between one and four, if we can work that out. He doesn't say, God, I've got some other things going on, uh, but I would, if, I, if I can find some time, find some, if I can carve out some time, I'll spend it to do what your mission. And he definitely does not say, no, not me. Isaiah doesn't even know what God's mission is going to be. He just knows, I've been in the presence of the Holy One. The Holy One has provided spiritual cleansing. So send me, whatever it is. You have my yes, whatever it is. I'm your guy. I'm the one. Look at what God says. He said, go and say to this people, keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes, lest they see with their, ear, or see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. Okay, that doesn't sound like, doesn't sound like uh, the most positive thing I could be doing, God. That is what your plan is. Notice what Isaiah says. Then I said, uh, how long, O oh Lord? <laughs> how long do you want me to preach and nobody listen? How long do you want me to cry out and everybody turn a blind eye to it? How, how, how long am I supposed to do that? Notice what God doesn't, God doesn't say, oh, for about four weeks, Isaiah. Uh, just till the end of this quarter, Isaiah. Till you can find another position, Isaiah. No, look, look what he says. And he said, until cities lie waste without inhabitant and houses without people and the land is a desolate waste and the Lord removes people far away and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land and though a tenth remain in it, it will be burned again like a terebinth or an oak whose stump remains when it is felled. The holy seed is its stump. God is saying, keep preaching, Isaiah. Keep preaching. Everybody's taken away in exile. Keep preaching. And by the way, the Babylonian captivity isn't going to be enough for them, and I'm going to have to even do some more pruning among those who are left. I'm going to do it in the right way. This is my plan. This is my purpose, and I'm directing it as I see fit. And Isaiah says, okay. He's already said okay before he even hears what the mission is. Here I am, send me. That should be our answer our bold answer to a holy God who asked the question, whom shall I send and who will go for us? We should answer that question with a yes before we even know what all the details are. Uh, yes. Why? 
Because he's a holy God and he rules over all creation and he sits on the throne and his train fills the temple and he has provided cleansing through the blood of his son. And so when this holy God says, who's going to go? We should all be willing to say, me, send me. I don't know what the details are. I don't know where it is. I don't know how long it's going to take. I don't know any of that, but I'm your person, God. I'm your man. I'm your woman. You just send me. You do whatever you want because whenever you come to Christ, you have surrendered ownership of your own life to this holy one who sits on the throne. And if you have settled for anything less than absolute and complete surrender, can I just tell you, God will do whatever it takes for you to realize he's the king sitting on the throne. We're not the masters of our own fate. We're not the captains of our own destiny. No, God is the ruler over all creation. And so when God says, I'm a holy God, And I need somebody to go. We should be the ones who say, absolutely, send me, God. Now, I know around this time people say, oh, but wait. But I got all this going on. I got all that going on. I've had people tell me over the years, well, I know one thing. God will never call me to be a missionary. You better watch it. And by the way, since when is being a missionary a horrible thing? I've heard people talk about it like it's some terrible, horrible thing. By the way, anytime you drive off this campus, you are entering into the mission field. So if you're not a missionary, can I just tell you, you're either A, acting out of the will of God as he's revealed in his word that we're to be missionaries and ambassadors to the world, or you don't know God. Those are the only two options. You're disobedient and you don't know him because we're supposed to live as missionaries. That's the point. So we should be the ones who say, hey, I'll, God, I'm going to agree before I even know what you're going to say. My answer is yes. It's always, always yes, no matter what that is. One old theologian said, it means that we're open on the Godward side. It means whatever God wants to do in our life, however God wants to speak to our life, whatever God wants to call us to do, that door is open. God, I, I'm, I'm your guy. I'm your woman. I'll be there. You've you've got me. You paid for me. And because God is set apart, he's holy through the blood of Christ. God has set us apart. So many times we, we look at the idea of being set apart and holy and we list things that we avoid. We act as though that's what holiness means. Well, I'm holy. I don't do this and I don't do that and I don't do that. Can I just tell you? Yes, we are saved from something but we are saved for something we are saved from sin and we are saved to accomplish the mission of god and be his ambassadors you can't just have it one way you can't just say well i'm saved from that and now i'm just in this this happy little neutral place no you are saved for something to be set apart for his purposes now i know some of you right now you're in a place in your life you're wrestling, you're doubting, you're saying, I don't know if I can trust God. I don't know what's going on. I can't see the end. Can I just tell you? Tell him yes. Tell him yes, even when you don't know the details. Why? Because he sits on the throne. He sits on the throne and he is the holy one who has never done anything wrong. He's never made a mistake. He's never made an off call. He always does what is right and what is perfect, even if we don't understand it. And so we tell him yes. Yes, God, whatever. Yes. Fill in the details as we go. Don't even, you have to, have to tell me details. Just yes, I'm yours. How can you do this? You can do this when you reclaim the awe of a holy God and recognize who he is. 
Listen to Jeremiah chapter 10, verse 23. I know, O Lord, that the way of man is not in himself. It is not in man who walks to direct his steps. We don't know what's best for us. We don't know what's best for the kingdom of God in and of ourselves. We are incapable of producing any of that for God in and of ourselves. We need God's power. We need God's wisdom. We need God's truth to direct us. And when we understand the way is not in and of ourselves, we're able to say, God, here I am, send me. Don't know where you're going to send me. Don't know what you're going to have me to do. But I trust you because you rule over all things. Proverbs 19, 21. Many are the plans in the mind of a man, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. It's been said, you want to make God laugh? Tell him your plans. Tell him your schedule. That's why James says we should say, if the Lord wills, we'll do this or that. We need to understand that God is a holy God. We need to understand that God is a holy God who rules over all things. We need to understand that God is a holy God who rules over all things and he sits on his throne and he will never, never leave that throne. And when we understand that, when we understand that, our worship will change. We respond to him in the right way. Our repentance will become more quick because we recognize God's a holy God and we need to be clean before him. And our agreement to his mission, our absolute surrender to his mission will be immediate whenever God says, who can I send? Send me. I don't know what it is, but send me. Use me. Because God's capable. He's capable of equipping. He's capable of empowering. And he will send us to accomplish his will. If we are going to be the people that God has called us to be, not just here at East Haven, but I'm talking about all over the world, the people of God, if we are going to be the people that God has called us to be, we must biblically, from a biblical perspective, reclaim the awe of a holy God. Let's pray. Lord God, we come before you. And God is a holy God. We know that you cannot, you cannot bear sin. turn your face from sin and not only that sin withers in your presence sinful humanity recoils and and withdraws from your presence because of our inherent sinfulness and the only way we can come before you boldly and confidently is by the blood of christ when he died on a cross to save us from our sins, to provide a means by which we could know you so that we could have the hope of seeing you one day face to face as you are and that you would transform us completely into the likeness of Christ. Not that we'll be God, but that we will be perfect. Father, I pray if there's anyone here today anyone watching or listening now maybe they're watching or listening later and they've never made that decision to surrender to you a holy god by trusting in the sacrifice that jesus made on that cross i pray today would be the day they would do that and i pray that you would transform their worship they, you would transform their lives in such a way that they they immediately repent that you would transform them so that they would be a people 
who will boldly be an answer to your question even before the details are revealed. Yes, yes, yes. Here I am, Lord, send me. Father, I pray for those who know Christ who are listening. I pray for all of us. I pray that you would revive that awe of you as a holy God. That we would we would recognize from your word who you are, that you are set apart, that you are worthy of all praise and worthy of all honor, and that we would join that angelic host crying out, holy, holy, holy. You are set apart. You are separate. You are completely other. And you rule over all creation. Yet through the blood of Christ, You've provided a means by which we can draw near to you. Thank you for that mercy. Thank you for that grace. Thank you for that love with which you loved us. Thank you that when we were so deeply unholy and stained and separated, that through the blood of Christ, you brought us near so that we can boldly come before you, not flippantly, not not in a, in, a, in a light way, but we can come before you and give you praise and honor and glory for who you are as a holy God. Lord God, use your word to reclaim that awe of you as a holy God in each of our lives. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.